and I was able to just take a little walk down uh, Audie and Miss Joe's gravel road and just kind of enjoy the scenery. Actually, it was too late. I waited till like 11 to go, and I was sweating like a dog when I got back. But um, it was uh, great to be out, and, and I was telling Linda Hudspeth uh, before the service, as I was walking, I just just was thanking the Lord for the time that we got to spend here um, 11 years ago. Uh, what a blessed time, and it's something I look back uh, on with great fondness, uh, a lot of lessons learned, and the way this church uh, helped me to become a pastor and to lead and to uh, get confidence in that, and I still draw on those things now, and um, and it's, it's great. Uh, Debbie's here tonight, so I get to share this. You know, one of the things that we got to do early on was to kind of have a staff for the first time here and part-time staff. And uh, we went through like one transition while we were here. But the first staff, um, it was the first dream team. It really was. And uh, Chad and Debbie were working with youth and children. And then Jerry came as music and uh, just a wonderful time working together. And God bless that time. And I uh, I still look back at those days as such a wonderful thing. And, and I still talk about, well, at Forestburg, here's what we did. Or Debbie was a kid's magnet. And here's kind of what we had going on back then and uh, in fact we were just talking the other day about the changes ministry Debbie at our church because uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with our sixth graders transitioning and I was talking about hey there was this thing we did at Forestburg and it worked so uh, you never know uh, how God's going to do some things so what a blessed uh, time that was so thank you uh, those who you're here back then and those of you who weren't you'll have those stories in the future as God continues to do great things here I'm told there are three kinds of people in the world. There are people who make things happen. There are people who watch what's happening. And there are people who wonder what happened. (laughs) Nehemiah was a man who made things happen. But he didn't do so through force or through fright or even in his own strength. Nehemiah made things happen with that careful guidance and provision and wisdom that was granted him by Almighty God that we've already seen in the first two messages. And so as we encounter this scripture, those of you who are just joining with us tonight, we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, 12 and following. We have already seen Nehemiah get the report of how things are in Jerusalem, how they've been uh, that way for 140 years. But it's really come to Nehemiah's attention now as he's working in Susa as a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, he has gone to Artaxerxes after much prayer, asked for the blessing to be able to go back and build, and now he is going to Jerusalem to do that. Now, at this time, as we come to this part of the scripture, uh, King Artaxerxes has given Nehemiah everything that he needs to carry out the task of rebuilding the wall. He uh, does lack two things, however, and that is the plan of how he's going to rebuild the wall, and he also lacks the laborers with which to do it. So the king has given him the time to do it. He's given him all of the authority to take care of the work. He's given him all the resources that he needs to carry out the work. But Nehemiah needs to go now to Jerusalem to develop a plan to recruit the people and to implement that plan. So let's begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 and following. It says, I went to Jerusalem... And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. 
By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah traveled some 1,000 miles, probably a two-month journey, from Susa over there at the top of the Red Sea all the way over to Jerusalem. And he arrives in Jerusalem, and as he just said, he spends three days before just kind of looking around before he does anything else. And he probably spent those days uh, taking time to rest after that long trip, focusing his energies on the task ahead, and even meeting the people with whom he would soon call to work. So far, Nehemiah's pattern has been to pray and then to act, and to pray and then to act, and to pray, and then to act. And it makes sense that now he's in Jerusalem, and so what's he doing? He's praying again. He's asking the Lord to guide him and to see what's needing to take place next. It's a first step, but not the final step. Uh, Someone has said it is the sluggard who leans on the shovel and prays for a ditch. As we said before, you've got to act as well As pray, Nehemiah knew the wall wouldn't miraculously rebuild itself no matter how much he prayed. He could pray, Lord, rebuild it, and it wasn't just going to start wall coming up together. He needed workers. But Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. The people didn't know him. He didn't know the people. So he took some days to get to know the people. Nehemiah doesn't rush in and say, hey, you have to follow me on orders of King Artaxerxes. He comes in. He builds some relationships, he surveys needs, he gets to know them, and he lets them get to know him. So after his three days of rest and prayer, Nehemiah begins his work. He begins his work all by himself under the cover of darkness with no one else looking on. So I think like during the day, he probably continued getting to know the people. But at night, he got on his mount and he went to work. And he looked over the wall. And as we see him start to do this, we see an important principle of rebuilding, resetting, that begins to unfold. And that is the principle of preparation. There must be a plan. Nehemiah never runs by the seat of his pants. He never follows a whim. You don't see him one day sensing the call of God and the next day just running off half-cocked to whatever that was. He always takes time to pray and to think and to plan, and then he steps out. In verses 12 to 16, we see Nehemiah examining, praying, thinking, and planning. Under that cloak of darkness, Nehemiah takes tours of the walls of Jerusalem to see firsthand the extent of the damage and the repair. And as we read this, it sounds like Nehemiah did this in one night, but it was probably several nights. Because it would take that to go along and to get in his mind 
where the wall was really destroyed. What areas were the worst? What were okay? The word translated examined or viewed in our translations is a medical term, which means to look into a wound carefully. And so that's what Nehemiah was doing. He was carefully examining that wall each night, noting each breach, each problem area. And this tour of walls served to confirm and crystallize for him the importance of the vision that God had given him. But notice that second part of verse 12 where he says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. It does little good to tell people the vision if you haven't thought it through. And this is where a lot of pastors get messed up. They get some kind of idea and they run off half-cocked. But you've got to let that vision crystallize. Daydreamers don't persevere to the end. Real leaders, real visionaries plan. They ask the tough questions and they seek out the answers. Nehemiah knew that he had to do this. He had to develop the plan. Even though God had laid this project upon his heart... Nehemiah still did not know all he needed to do. And so here, once again, as he had done before he went to King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah takes time to pray and to plan and to listen to the will of God. He's following God step by step. When working on nearly any project, I'm often reminded of this statement that one of my um, bosses in college said, prior planning prevents poor performance. Nehemiah knew that principle. Even with the hand of God upon you, you've got to do the hard work of preparing and planning. Uh, when we were first preparing to go to Pineville, um, when we went in view of a call, actually, uh, I asked for some keys to the building. And I went through the building the Saturday before we preached that next Sunday. And I wrote down things that I noticed that needed to be addressed in the building. And we started doing that. Uh, immediately after we were called to pastor there. And about two years in, though, we were still marking off one item and adding three. And the one items were getting more expensive, and the ones we were adding were getting very, very expensive. And so finally I I went to the deacons at one of our meetings, and I I said, Guys, uh, we need to uh, have a long-range planning committee. We've got to look down the road and see we've got so many issues coming up with our facilities, as we're growing, we're wanting to address some things in ministry. We need to get some people that are just going to look at this. And so they uh, recommended to the church a fantastic team that then worked for about two years, sometimes meetings every week, sometimes twice a week. It was laborious. But we were studying the church. We dreamed about ministries that we could have in the years to come. We then looked at how our facilities were going to help those ministries to come about in the years to come. And the end result was a master plan that we would have. And we looked at a total renovation of our hundred and some odd square feet of facilities and then making some additions to address some needs and then adding some parking in the future. When we asked uh, Doug Ash, who was our uh, one of our deacons at the time, but he's also our lead architect, we said, you know, Doug, what would this master plan take if we just built it all tomorrow? And he said, I don't even want to guess. And we said, well, just... Just give us a number. He said, oh, 25 million or more. Well, we knew we couldn't <laughs> do that. 
But we didn't just scrap the plan because we felt like this was somewhere the church was taking us. And so we said, well, let's develop some phases to help us get there. And so we worked together and I told Doug, I said, Doug, that first phase can't be more than 1.9 million. That is a ton of money for us. We can't do any more than that. And so we brought the church a, a plan that was 1.9999995. And uh, we presented it to the church. And at that business meeting, I was shocked. Doug was shocked. The entire Long Range Planning Committee was shocked. As the church members started saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And we're like, well, that'll be another something. And that'll be another this. Or if we do that, that begats this. And they said, we want to do it. We want to do it. So we went back, we came back. We'd already studied all those issues because we had been working on the master plan. We came back with a $3.86 million phase. And I was amazed when the church vote was unanimous to move forward with that. When the project was completed, it actually took about $5.5 million. And um, amazingly, no one complained, and no one has complained, though we're a little nervous over the $3.5 million of debt we now have. But... We've seen people continue to be on board because they were on board from the beginning. They were part of the planning process. They were helping to see that vision because they were helping develop the plan. And I'll still have people, some of our senior adults, they'll say, Hey, Pastor, when are we doing another phase? Because I want to see it before I die. And I'm like, well, if you've got a couple million dollars, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> but we don't have people like that in our church. Um, well... God was putting that together. But still, while a plan is great, you can't implement that plan until you recruit the people and inspire them to action to take care of that plan. And so that's where we come to our second rebuilding principle, and that is the principle of motivation, that there must be inspired people. Let's look together at verses 17 and 18. So remember, nobody knew what was happening. He hadn't said anything. That's what he tells us in verse 16, then 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. I love how O.S. Hawkins breaks down Nehemiah's work in motivation, and he just uses uh, some simple words to break it down. I've used those as kind of the, the bullet points. And those are four things. Face up, team up, gird up, and look up. First, the face up. The Israelites had gotten used to the way things were. Now, they stumbled around the fallen boulders. They went around the burnt sections of the wall. They had adjusted life to their destruction instead of bringing life to the destruction. Let me say that again. They had adjusted life to the destruction instead of bringing life to the destruction. And so Nehemiah points this out. It often takes someone new to see things that are right under our noses. Years of familiarity have a way of causing kind of a, us to look at stuff without really even seeing it anymore. Um, in the last week or two that, that I was pastor here, uh, I felt like I was pastoring two church. Pineville just wasn't paying me yet because I was getting phone calls and emails just all the time. And uh, it turned out that was a little bit what the next year or two was going to be like. But one of those emails was um, 
telling me about some work that they were doing in the fellowship hall there at the church, which is a, a pretty large room. And I remember it looking pretty dingy when I did my kind of survey of the building. And, and they were letting me know they were painting it because they were doing a welcome uh, luncheon on our first Sunday there. And so I was like, that's great. And they, and they asked in the email, is there anything else you think we need to do? And I said, well, I remember when we were down there, there were all of these dividers at all of the columns, and it made the room look really cramped, and they were old and dingy looking. I was like, do we really use those? Could we take them down? And there were some people in the email stream that said, no, let's take them down. And then they said, you know, I don't think those dividers have been used since about 1980. It had been so long since those dividers had used, when they took them down, they had to get on the floor with scrapers and scrape up the wax that was built up on the floor around them. But they had just been there until the new guy said, couldn't we just take them down? And they said, hey, yeah. And it opened up the room. Nehemiah came to the people and he said, you got to face up to what things are like. You see the true trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. And I imagine the people who knew this now saw it again. And they said, oh, yeah, it does look pretty bad, doesn't it? Let's do something. So then Nehemiah had the people team up. Come, he said, let us rebuild. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to get to rebuilding. He doesn't say, get up off your lazy bums and you get to building. He says, let us rebuild. He calls for teamwork. And so Nehemiah challenges the people to work with him, not for him. As you rebuild the church, there's no room for a dictating pastor. And there's no room for pew-sitting members. It takes teamwork. Everybody has to step out. Everybody has to serve. And one of the amazing things that that we saw God do at Pineville is that when a church is down, God often raises up new leaders and he provides new people just when you need them. When the church imploded two years before my arrival, uh, a lot of people left, a lot of money left. Really about a third of the people and a third of the money were left. Um, But by the time I arrived, several of the people had stepped up to lead who hadn't really done that before. One of those was Mac McCann. Mac was probably in his 70s at the time when we got there. And Mac had taken on fixing up building stuff. And so he was there all the time getting guys to help. And they were just fixing stuff that had been neglected. Toilets and replacing sinks and Painting a wall here or making sure a a leaky roof was fixed. And he did that for about five years until his health prevented him from doing that. But by the time uh, I arrived, there were also new people starting to come. And and two of the best are are Harry and Beth Ingalls. Harry grew up at First Baptist Pineville, Louisiana. Uh, He and Beth uh, went there while they were in college. And then they began their careers. And he spent most of his career in other cities as a coach and as a principal and as a school superintendent. But in 2008, they were retiring and moving back. And they decided to move back to Pineville because their daughter and her family and the first grandkid, those of you grandkids understand that, were in Alexandria, Pineville. So they were coming back. 
And so they visited the church before Rebecca and I got there, and they walked in and were shocked by what they found. Because when they left in the 1970s, the church was running a 1,000. And when they returned, the church has got 160, 170 people. And they go, oh, my goodness, what happened? Well, they heard this new preacher was coming, so they came to hear the new preacher. But they were, they were in a tug-of-war in prayer because their daughter Ruth was across the river in Alexandria at the big church, Calvary. And Ruth sings all the time over at Calvary. And the grandbaby was over there. But here was this church that they loved from their early childhood and college years that they knew needed help. And they prayed and they prayed. And where are we going to go? And I was praying, Lord, we need them so bad. But there's no reason they will ever join this church, you know. But then came the Sunday where here came Beth and Harry, and they joined the church. And looking back over the 11 years, much of the reason that we've been able to come to where we are today is because of people like that who have joined. Harry has been on the deacons. He's actually our chairman of deacons right now. He's been chairman of deacons a couple of times. Um, He was on that long-range planning committee. He led our capital campaign. He was on the phase one steering committee, and he continues to be active. He has one of the largest Sunday school classes in the church, and Beth is a preschool teacher. She's written curriculum for Lifeway for years. She teaches four-year-old Sunday school. They joined when there were absolutely no preschoolers for her to teach, and now she's taught preschool every single year and still doing it. She helped develop our first kids strategy, which is about being first, being focused on God, involved in ministry, respected by peers, strengthened in faith, and transformed by Christ. It's our vision of what we want our kids to become. She helped develop that. Teaming up. God provides the people you need right when you need them. But Nehemiah then takes the people to a next step, and that is gird up. Not only does he say let us but he says we got to rebuild he cast the vision by looking forward to the finished product what was that goal a rebuilt wall a new wall nehemiah shows the people where they could be if they'll all work together people need a vision where there is no vision the people perish or they go in four to eleven dozen different directions there's got to be a vision cast it can be god-sized but it has to be seeable In his book, Ten Things Every Minister Needs to Know, which I got at seminary for free back when I was in master's, Ronnie Floyd writes this, Vision is rallying people to a better future. Vision is helping people see what you already see. Vision is calling the invisible into visibility. Nehemiah does just that. He had been given the vision by God. He had clarified that vision through prayer and examination of the wall. And now he makes the invisible visible for the people of Jerusalem. In a church, the vision is typically cast by the pastor. It's one of the things that God does when he calls us to a church. And honestly, casting the vision for a building is a whole lot easier than casting vision for something philosophical. Um, that's one reason why we married ministry vision and building vision together at our church in those early, early years. So we had something. But you've got to capture the vision. 
You've got to let people see what that's going to be. What are we aiming for? That's why we tell our people. We do life together as we seek to be first. And then we lay out those five tenets of be first. This is what we're after. That every kid that comes to our door, every youth that comes to our door, every adult that comes to our door, we want them to be first. And that's where we're heading. You've got to make it clear. Nehemiah says, let's do this. Rebuild the wall. Look around. One day there's going to be a rebuilt wall around this city and you're going to be a part. And so with that vision in mind, then Nehemiah next calls the people to look up. Something he knew a lot about. He says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Remember what we said last night? When the hand of God is upon you, look out. So Nehemiah says, guys, the hand of God is upon me. We have the power of God on our side. It's not by chance that Artaxerxes has let me come, given me the Home Depot credit card for the kingdom, given me all of the rites of passage, helped me to be able to do all of this. It is God's hand upon us. You know, it's good to know this stranger Nehemiah cares about the city, but it's Really good to know that he's not some Yahoo with a pipe dream. That there's really something about this. He has the spiritual and physical authority and empowerment to accomplish the task. The hand of God was upon him. And people have a a way of rallying around something when they see God is in it. There's a magnetic attraction to that. People want to be where God is at work. They want to see that. And so Nehemiah helps the people... No, this, is a, this isn't a man-sized dream. This is a God-sized dream. It's a God-blessed dream as well. And they readily respond, let us start rebuilding. So they face up, they team up, they gird up, they look up. And that was Nehemiah's motivation strategy. But what was his motivation? Well, you may have noticed another statement Nehemiah makes as he calls the people to rebuild. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be a disgrace. That speaks to Nehemiah's motivation. Was his motivation to have the finest built wall around? No. Was his motivation to have the prettiest city around? No. His motive was that we may no longer be a disgrace to the name of God. Because this is God's city. God's city should look right. God's city should be protected. And for it to remain in disrepair said that this God must not be very powerful and important. And so Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the wall so that God's name could be lifted up. That reminds us how physical things represent God to the watching world. Uh, our, our physical presence represents God. Our individual lives, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we represent ourselves, the way we present ourselves on social media, the way we care for our homes, all of that brings testimony to God. But even more, the state of our church facilities are a great testimony of those people that pass by as to how um, we care about the Lord. Uh, when driving through a city or town... 
I'll see a rundown church, and I'll just get on my soapbox. Why don't they cut the bushes? Why don't they paint the wall? Why don't they do this? And Rebecca just starts shaking her head. Oh, my God, please not. But that's why, I mean, those of you who were here, do that was a big thing here. I was insisting on that here, and that's why we've spent so much on that in Pineville. The church campus is a testimony. Every church should have the best-looking real estate because it's God's real estate. In our renovation, we spent millions of dollars on the inside of the building and on stuff you'll never see, like air conditioners and uh, sprinkling for fire. But it wasn't until we did things on the outside that the city took notice. For 40 years, when you passed by the church, it looked exactly the same. But we redid the landscape and we replaced the sign. We did a little addition. We cleaned up. When we power washed all of the gunk off of the bricks and the stone and as we repainted the stucco and as we freshened up overgrown landscaping, people started to notice and they realized finally that something was happening at First Baptist Church. Nehemiah knew that a well-kept city like a well-kept church is a testimony of the awesome work that, of God in and among us. So, Nehemiah has the plan, and the people are motivated, and now what? Well, we're about to discover the third principle of rebuilding, and that is the principle of delegation. Those inspired people must have a task. Motivated people are great, but they must be worked into the plan. And within every plan to accomplish a vision are various roles that need to be fulfilled. And delegating people to carry out those roles allows the vision to be carried out. In chapter 3, which we're not going to read um, much of that at all. I'm just going to summarize that. Nehemiah delegates the task of rebuilding. And he has an interesting strategy. First, he cuts the problem down to size. Nehemiah didn't just say, okay, guys, there's the wall, get to work. No, as you read chapter 3, you see that he knows that would be overwhelming. So what he does is he says, hey, priest, why don't you take the sheep gate and go from there on the wall all the way down to the tower of Hananel? That will be your section. And then you friends from Jericho, hey, thanks for coming to help. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to pick up where the priests leave off, and then you take the next section down. And all around the wall, Nehemiah journeyed assigning people sections from point A to point B. And everyone had a specific task. No one had to, had to do it all. So he cuts the problem down to size. Second, he connected the people to the section that was important to them. Did you notice that the priest rebuilt the sheep gate? Why? Because the sheep gates where the sheep were brought into the city for sacrifice. They used that gate all the time. So a Nehemiah assigned them that section of the wall that was most important to them. Other people rebuilt sections of the wall that were closest to their houses. Because, hey, where do you want to be safe? At home. So let's rebuild that part of the wall. And people are normally most interested in something that impacts them directly. So... In the body of Christ, people have certain gifts. They have certain skills and and interests that Christ has built into them. It's just who we are. And our members need to be linked with the ministries in the church for which they have the interest. Someone who loves kids but can't balance their checkbook doesn't need to be serving on the finance committee. They need to be serving in the kids' ministry, right? You want to put people where they can be fulfilled. Where they can enjoy what they do. Someone who loves to minister hands-on shouldn't be given the burden of administrative work. 
They need to be touching people's lives. So connect people to the section that's most important to them. And then, number three, use everyone. No one is left out of this project. It's not just the carpenters and the stonemasons out there. It was everyone. The priests left their work at the temple to rebuild that section of the wall that was theirs. Men and their sons joined together. I love where it says, goldsmiths and perfume makers. These were the soft-handed guys in the city, right? But yet they leave their perfume shops and they go out to build the wall. Men and their wives, men and their daughters all work to rebuild. And my favorite is found in chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Anybody know what the dung gate was used for? That was the trash. That was the poop gate. And here you have not some lowlife doing that gate. A guy who was ruler of a certain district. No one was too good for any task. And so this ruler goes out and builds his part. Everyone serves. Everyone is used. And that should remind us that everyone has a part in a vision of God. When God calls the people to do something, he calls everybody to do it. Not just a few. At our church, we have two special needs guys who help take up the offering every Sunday. They've been doing it for years and years, way before my time. They come down. That's the one job that they can do in the church, and they do it faithfully every week. There's a place for everyone. Fourth, everyone works side by side. There's joy in working side by side and sweating together. As you read through this chapter, you'll see recurring statements like next to him was this and beside them was that. And it's wonderful beauty because there is much unity and warmth and love that comes as people work and serve side by side. They become a team. They realize that everyone's important. They get to know one another and care for one another While they're moving blocks into place, they start talking about their lives. They start talking about their families. They start exchanging stories. And they build friendships and relationships that bind them together long after that project is done. One of my favorite memories here was the church working on this building. When I was called to pastor here, this the building was basically in the dry. There was still a whole lot of work to be done. And we spent every Saturday here working. We did Work nights and work days and all kind of stuff. And uh, Dale Hudspeth and James Hammer, they'd be up here almost every night sometimes in the week working. And uh, there was just, and we got to love on one another. And we learned things. Like I learned here that you always need to get the right tool for what you're going to be doing. One day we were out here spreading the dirt right out in front of the church. Sonny was helping us. Sonny said, hang on a second. Well, hang on a while. I'm going to my house to get my tractor. Sonny drove clear to his house, got on his tractor, drove his tractor right up here and spread out the dirt. And I thought, my goodness. But he knew you need the right tool. I learned something. Sonny got to serve. All of us served together. And I can still come and remember working on certain parts of the wall because we did it together. Nehemiah initiates his well-thought-out strategy, and the work gets going at a great pace. But we need to pause and note an interesting absence in chapter 3. If you read it through, Nehemiah is never mentioned. 
Here the task of rebuilding is happening, but Nehemiah is not specifically mentioned. He doesn't say, I did this or I did that. He gives the people all of the credit. Now, was he doing anything? Was Nehemiah just back up under a shade tree, you know, fanning himself, saying, yeah, good job, man? No. He was probably traveling around the wall, encouraging people along. I bet at times when he saw people that were a little frustrated, he got down and he helped them for a little while and, and encouraged them along the way. Through it all, Nehemiah built a team spirit, encouraging everyone to do his part to accomplish the plan that God had given to fulfill the vision that God had granted. And so as we conclude chapter 3, the sounds of hammers and saws and chisels fill the air and progress is being seen every single day. As people work together, the progress is surprisingly fast. The vision is being realized. And it took those principles of preparation, motivation, and delegation to help that happen as God's hand came upon those people and they worked. As we think about This church and the reset. Maybe you think about your own life, your family. What section of the wall is God calling you to rebuild? What kind of giftedness have you been given where you can step in and you can pick up a hammer or a chisel and you can build that section to God's glory? What ministry is there that that you could lead, that you could take on? What area of service is needed that you could fill? It takes everybody. There in in Pineville some years ago, um, as I was looking around the building, I said, you know, we've got this gym. We have a full gymnasium. And it was the most or the least used piece of real estate on our property. The building sat vacant every day. Big old gym. Back in the day, in the 1970s, they roller skated in there and they had open nights because there wasn't anything else to do in town and college kids came. But, you know, nobody does that anymore. But this building just sat there. So I was praying about, what can we do? And I heard about this program called Upward Basketball. And I said, you know, we've got a college coach here. We've got my mom, who's a basketball coach here. We've got, oh, that guy's a referee. That guy coaches Maybe look at what God's given you, and maybe he could put something together. And so I, it's upper basketball. So I kind of looked into it, and I found out, ooh, that was expensive. There's no way we could do that. And so went on a little bit, and a, our new, a new music minister came on board. And Chris had come to us from a church in Florida where they had upper basketball. And Chris had young kids. He's like, Stuart, we need to do this thing called upper basketball. And I said, Chris, we can't do it. I mean, Chris and I had a toe-to-toe almost knockout, drag-out, fighting staff meeting that day. I was like, we can't do it! I was just mean. But Chris was bullheaded and probably listening to God more than his pastor was, frankly. And he said, no, look, we can do this. I'll follow you wherever, Stuart, but look, we can do this. And I've known Chris since we were in college. So I said, okay. So he got together. I said, let's just, we were having a, a, a vision day different ministries. And I said, I'll tell you what, on the vision table, we're going to just put out there vision, upward basketball. So I got, Zach was little bitty at the time, I got Zach's little tykes plastic basketball goal. I printed out the upward sports logo and stuck it on there and put a sign up thing. And I stood at that table. And that day people went around, all the things, we had women on mission and the, you know, media team and all that kind of stuff. And they come around and they'd, what's this? I said, well, this is ministry we like. 
start. We'd like to have, you know, upward basketball where these kids come play basketball and you tell them about Jesus. And, oh, okay. And a couple people signed up. So it went on about a, a week or two, and my mom asked. She said, Stu, anybody sign up for that upward basketball stuff? I said, well, a couple people. She said, well, if nobody else really signs up, I'd be willing, on, willing to be on a team to help with that. Oh, okay, Mom. I still didn't have a leader. We went on a couple more weeks. She's like, well, has anybody else said anything about upward? I'm like, no, ma'am, just you. She said, I'd be willing to help lead a team on that. I said, oh, really? Okay. So you might need to talk to Chris. Chris and Mom talked to another guy named Gene Jones who used to do RA basketball back in the 70s. Gene was 80. Mom, 70. They're gonna, they go off to somewhere out of Houston to an upward clinic. They come back fired up. They're like, we're gonna do this. I'm like, how? It costs this many thousand dollars. They're like, oh, we're gonna do this. We're gonna get people to donate this and this. The program pays for this. And, and we've got a good plan. I'm like, okay. You know, we've been doing upward now for seven years. Never cost time. They had to buy basketball goals. We have 200 kids involved in the program. My mom's still leading it. She's there 50 hours a week for eight weeks during upward. And God's just done amazing things. Because the right people were in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time. You never know what God wants to do. In your church. If God calls you to do something though. He's either already got the people here to do it. Or he's about to bring the people to you to do it. You just have to be ready to go. When he says. Let's go. Let's pray together. Lord I don't know what all you have in store here. In the future. But I know it's great things. And Lord as you. Continue to reset and rebuild. I pray, Lord, that you would help everyone to work together to see the vision realized. I pray, Lord, for a clear vision. I pray, Lord, that prayer would undergird that vision. And then, Lord, that every single day would be focused on achieving that vision for your glory. We ask for you to make your name great through this church. Lord, may Forestburg Baptist Church be known as a place where your name is highly exalted, where you are served, where lives are transformed, and where every single day you're doing some kind of work through the ministry of this church. God, we ask that you would do it sooner rather than later, and we ask that you would do it for your glory and honor. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.